Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Boundary of Disaster and our newest episode of this motor racing podcast. It's Ellie here and I'm taking the reins from Dan as he recovers from a hangover from a wedding yesterday. Joining us tonight is Matt Willis. Hello. And Adam Berry. Hello. Our plan for the podcast is to discuss the very latest news in the racing world and welcome some incredible guests to chat about their careers and our sport in general. We don't actually have a guest today, but we do have some news. Yeah, we do indeed. Uh, we've got Hazel Southwell back with us today, uh, this time as an official member of the Boundary of Disaster team. So welcome back, Hazel, and uh, welcome to the team. It's very exciting, obviously, uh, as as anyone in motorsport, big thanks to the team and uh, just, just happy to be here. <laughs> Okay, shall we kick off with launching straight into the uh, the Singapore Grand Prix? Everyone Sounds recovered good. from that yet? Yeah, it was a long one, wasn't it? It felt like a long so one. Long. It was so long. <laughs> I think I think it probably felt like slightly less long for us than the the drivers who looked pretty melted by the end of it. Um, mm. But yeah, cool. Even by Singapore's standards, that was um, a bit endurance. Yeah, seeing Carlos yeah. afterwards, he looked like someone had left an icy pole off out of the frid out of the freezer for like four hours <laughs> and just a puddle on the floor. And I remember I just remember looking at the screen after it felt like what about an hour and it had been fourteen laps. I was like, Oh my goodness, we're not even a third the yeah. way through. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite rare to see uh, you know, for how for how fit the drivers are, it's quite rare to see races where they're they're so beaten up afterwards these days. And it's kind of Feels like sort of harking back to a an older era of Grand Prix racing, where you know they they would be kind of out there for four hours and and um, just you know in, in burning hot cars and and just just getting through it was a challenge. Um, and I think it felt like most of the drivers, like Checo, you know, credit to Checo who did an amazing job. Um, not quite flawless, I think, as we'll come to. Um, but, uh, I think he's, he's kind of, cause he was going through a rough patch and his performances had been tailing off despite, you know, him, him having some good performances earlier in the year, but I think he's, he's kind of well and truly back in the game and whether or not that's, you know, he is Mr. Street Circuit. So whether this is like a, a blip is, is remains to be seen, but good job to Checo. Um, anyone else feel similarly? Yeah, I think so. I mean... I think a lot of people, I know on social media wise, every, everyone was kind of thinking, goodness, did Red Bull make the right decision extending the contract? And he really pulled out of the bag last weekend. So definitely did a good job in summer. They haven't been in a yeah. while as well. So, Yeah, I'd agree. He did, uh, as as Matt said, did pretty much everything right um, on Sunday um, with uh, the exception of something that we're, uh, I'd imagine, going to talk about. But um and he, he, he survived the pressure from Leclerc for quite a long period of the race as well, which, you know, as we've just mentioned, with the uh, um, sort of fatigue the drivers were experiencing is uh, no mean feat. I still think it's quite impressive that Leclerc managed to drop from 0.3 of a second back and thinking, yeah, he's going to take the lead to over seven seconds was a bit disheartening for us Ferrari fans. Definitely, definitely. So did did he just kind of use his tires too hard, trying to get past those sort of f- for those few laps, and then and then couldn't hold the pace, or was it the pace of the car, or you know, was it was really it physical? 
No, I'm not, I'm not sure. Probably a bit of both, I'd expect. But no, I'm not Which entirely is... sure why. I don't remember him saying anything about it in the post race. So, um, why Charles dropped back? He said he just he his phrase was "I degraded myself." Oh, fair enough. Like we're he saying, it's a hard race. It's a hot race. So no <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and apparently that was literally it. He said it in the cool down room. Um, and uh, oh, right. yeah. Um, so yes, suffering a driver degradation, um, particularly severe form of drop off. I, I can really sympathise with him. Yeah, I think I, I lost. I lost a bit of interest by that point, so I'm not surprised. Mm. But it's quite well, rare when you've got a, when you've got a car with a pace advantage that's kind of closing on the one in front, unless they finish their tyres. It feels like it's quite an unusual thing for them to then kind of, you know, drop back. But then I think um, I think Checo was on top of it for the far, you know, he had a few lockups uh, when he was really under pressure. But um, but you know, he he was just he was on top of it and he just he soaked up the pressure. And I don't know, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a um, um, I don't know the, the the fact that you know he's he's used to the he's maybe kind of used to the hot hot climate as well and uh, you know maybe maybe a little bit more able to cope with that than some of the other drivers perhaps from a European background maybe but who knows but he t- I just think yeah I mean Checo was one of the very few drivers who actually you know barely put a foot wrong um, all day um, and uh, you know I think I think Norris was another um, who, yeah, yeah I'd agree with Norris he had a very clean solid race I think anyway I mean Ricardo had a bit of a an under the radar race as well didn't he when you think about it yeah well I think Um, everyone in front of him retired so he had a pretty decent finishing (laughs) (laughs) finishing position Um, McLaren also had normally it's McLaren who like hit the second before a red flag or like decide to to make what turns out to be just the worst strategy call and similarly actually for Aston Martin but both their teams had really good um they stayed out longer on the the inters so they were able to take advantage of the free pit stop when safety cars started happening um they managed the whole race really well like like both you know, there's been quite a lot of weekends this year where both Aston Martin and McLaren, neither of whom are really where they were last year or, or where they would like to be in terms of the order, have lost things just through bad strategy calls. Some bad luck, some just unfortunate things. Um, and yeah, both both of the teams overall had really good weekends there. Unlike yeah, Alpine. Didn't, yeah. Didn't yeah. Lance come um, sixth? Or seventh? Yeah, their best result. I think it was. Yeah, it was, and Seb was seventh, wasn't he? I think. Um, yeah, they. I know they came back to back like um, Lando and what? Danny did, but I can't remember if yeah. it was sixth and seventh or seventh and eighth. Or... Mm. I think it. But it was again. It was. Seventh. It was just. I think it was weird conditions, um, or it was very it was unique conditions. I think it's fair to say, um, in that you had this. Partly, partly wet, partly dry track that just stayed that way for the whole race, pretty much. And mm. and it was it was kind of damp off line, um, and there was a dry line, a dry racing line, which just made for some really um, 
it kind of it was sort of like a light switch on off you know no grip on off no grip offline good grip online uh, and when drivers were still on the inters um then they were kind of wearing down to sort of uh you know wearing down to sort of semi slicks and and going even worse offline but better online and just the fact that it stayed that way you didn't have the cha- changing conditions the way you often do with a wet dry race it just it just struck me as kind of it was like being stuck in a kind of a time loop for the whole race and you expect the conditions to evolve and they kind of didn't um and so we had those little slips from lewis and from max um and uh, you know from from various people really where you know they ended up um kind of putting a foot offline and and semi going into the barriers and um you know losing a couple of places and having to sort of do it all again um so it was really kind of uh yeah, it was a it was a unique kind. Of, it felt like there was a lot going on. There were a lot of people saying, "My God, this is a boring race," and um, this is, you know feels like such a long and difficult race to watch. But there, you know, there was a lot of incident, and um, maybe it, it was just that it wasn't always kind of racing incidents. It was just sort of watching. Yeah, the drivers a lot of people ended up having to... to take escape roads and stuff as well, didn't they? Mm, mm. Yeah, it was lucky those yeah. escape roads were there, really. Yeah. I didn't think it was a boring race. It was just a long race, in my opinion. Anyway, I still watched it all. Mm. I, I find it quite interesting. Um, like you say, there was a lot. There was a lot going on. Um, whether it was mistakes being made or the various different safety cars, and you know the way that the tyre situation was playing out for the teams, um, you know all of that sort of thing. It wasn't as boring as a lot of people like to make out, but at the same time, it wasn't. Um, you know, it wasn't one that's going to get out in history as one of the greatest Grand Prix, but championship so implications? Uh, none. <laughs> well, there were. Uh, I mean, there were some championship implications in that, um, you know, Max, who has basically driven a pretty much flawless season, didn't didn't have one. Like, if he'd had a Max as standard weekend there was every chance he was going to take the title there. Um, but he didn't. He had messy quality, which wasn't entirely his fault, but also wasn't entirely not his fault. Like, he, he just didn't quite manage the the tyres and, and the way that he needed to do his laps in the way that he normally would, in the way that his team normally would. And, yeah, the race was a bit of a mess and he made a mistake when he was trying to overtake um, Norris. So, I think... Um, something that it's proven is you know for a team that and a driver who has looked so dominant this year I mean like I think we all know it's or the the mood is definitely that it's only a matter of time until he's given that trophy um but at the same time you know fallibility is still an option yeah and um I think the only really implication for the championship after that race is that McLaren pulled ahead of Alpine everything else everyone else kind of just moved like there's got more points no really reshuffling or anything else but construct constructors wise that's pretty much the only thing that happened Ferrari pulled themselves a little bit further away from uh, Mercedes as well didn't they because yeah a little you bit. Know, there, there's there's been periods where it's looked as though the way that Ferrari have been uh, performing this season that there was a chance Mercedes might finish second in the constructors, which would have, well, I mean, it still could happen. Um, and the, But that would be a disaster for Ferrari, given, you know, the pace of the car and the way that the drivers have performed this season. 
Mercedes have got to be disappointed, though, don't you think? Yeah, especially for George not getting out of Q2, and then because of that, they put him at the back, and he didn't really make a lot of progress. Yeah, it was very anticlimactic for the Mercs. Um, I think Lewis looked really strong in in the practice sessions, um, especially with you know, and from from the qualifying positions as well, with Max finishing, or sorry, qualifying where he did. Um, I think it's probably been, other than potentially the position he found himself in at Silverstone, Lewis, one of Lewis's best chance to actually win a Grand Prix this season. Um, and it just, I don't know, it was just a bit of an anticlimax from their point of view, the actual race. For whatever reason that was, it looks like perhaps it would have been better for the Mercs had it had been fully dry. But, you know, it is what it is. I think I think the Mercedes is just. I mean, maybe it being dry would have been an advantage. I I don't honestly know. I think by the time they got to the race, George was a bit done, um, just by the choices that had, had to be made because he hadn't got out Q two, um, and I think although everyone was quite optimistic that the there was a chance that that Hamilton could take the win. And if he had got pole, maybe. Um, But I also think the speed with which the Red Bull roared past the Ferrari, um, I actually, I don't know how realistic it would have been for, for, I mean, maybe the Mercedes could have kept the Ferraris behind, but I'm, I'm not really convinced that there's anything that can challenge the Red Bull, even on a street circuit. And if it had been dry, there would have been a lot more overtaking as well. Mm Mm-hmm. The Red Bull was quick. I mean, some of Max's overtakes, um, you know, the speed differential between the cars is mind-blowing. Um, and some of Max's overtakes, it pains me to say, for those who know me, but some of Max's overtakes were very, very good in the race. Um, I can't remember. There was one in particular going into one of the tighter hairpins uh, where his racing line on the inside was brilliant car control. Yeah, agreed. Um, I, th- I think there was. I think in a, probably in a dry race there wasn't going to be anything stopping the um, the Red Bulls. It's hard to see. Um, hard to see that. I think even if um, I think you know we we've had a couple of races this season where we've gone into it thinking you know Merck are, are maybe just about there and and maybe Merck could have a surprise. And in FP one, I think they were top, weren't they? And it was like, oh, have they turned it around, or is this the circuit for them? And then only for it to sort of fall away later on and I think it's just I think that car is just not going to do anything this year I, I dare say they've stopped working on it as well I dare say they're throwing everything at next year um, yeah the, the, the other thing as well is that did you know did Lewis's performances in were Lewis's performances in uh, in free practice or were his times slightly flattering given that it's Singapore and it's Lewis because obviously I think it's his favorite track isn't it and he's always traditionally been very good around that track. You know, he might have been getting more out of the car than, you know, most people would have been able to, um, and making it look a little bit better than it was. Yeah, well, Mercedes kind of felt a bit like Ferrari this weekend. They can pull it out in qualifying and practice because they can put a lap together really nicely, We're on, especially on low fuel and stuff. And then when it comes to the race, they just don't have the pace that the Red Bulls do. Red Bulls are just nice and well-rounded at the minute. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think Mercedes' only real hope if they had caught up and there was a point kind of just before the summer break where it looked like that they were certainly getting closer. They were much more, you know, they were much more convincingly in the fight somewhere with the front runners rather than slipping back into the midfield. Um, but if that if that had really closed up, I then reliability was going to be the thing that they would have potentially had over the other two teams. And even that, I mean, obviously Ferrari have had some shockers with it, but Red Bull don't even seem to really have a huge issue with that. Um, or when they have, they've got such a gigantic speed advantage that even if they say grid penalties, it, it just doesn't matter. Mm. Yeah, normally Max starting from P7 just means we'll have a five lap buffer before he's in first. Yeah, yeah, Mm. and it's like those first couple of races in the season when they they had the issue with the fuel cooling and the um the the, like they'd taken the baffles out of the fuel tank to save a few grams, and I think once they addressed that, then the car was just as bulletproof as anything out there. Um, which is this year not as bulletproof as 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 they have been in the hybrid era, but you know still pretty solid reliability wise. Um, I think for I think you know for Max to not win this year would take something like a Schumacher '99 incident. Um, you know, it's just a question of when. Um, I don't think uh, mm. you know. There's there's nothing on track that I can see happening to to change that inevitability. Um, it would it would mean it would need Ferrari to to get on top of their reliability to make a big jump in speed for Charles to not make any mistakes. Um, and and also, I think for for Red Bull to start messing up, I don't think any of those things are going to happen. It'd be interesting to know, you know, if Charles Charles did win every uh, hypothetically speaking, if he wins every race from this point forward, you know, what's the lowest that Max has got to finish in each race to for, for Charles to overturn the the difference in points? Um, you know, it, it just it, it's low. It's, like I mean, the difference between the two of them. So Max is now on three hundred and forty-one points. Charles is on two hundred and thirty-seven. That's mm. that's a hundred and four points worth of lead. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the mathematical possibility of even continuing to extend the championship is. Well, if the gap is still that big after Japan, so they could both just not even bother. Uh, then Max wins. Um, yeah, he would essentially need Max to not score. It would need to be less than 100 points because that's the most... Well, no, yeah, it would need to be less than 104 points at the end of Japan in order for, for Charles to even keep the fight alive. And mm. I don't know how plausible that is. He literally needs the wheels someone... to fall off Max's car every race. That's yeah. what's going it's, to... I did see someone on Twitter who worked it out in the most like pessimistic way possible. Like, what is the highest Max can score but but Charles still win the championship? And it's like, I think he'd have to come seventh or eighth, if that, to mm. be able... And, Mac, and Charles win every single race, but it's it, it's not plausible. It's not feasible. No, it's not going to happen. 
I suppose the only cost, the only kind of curveball might come from the rules, which I guess we'll come to in a bit. But just talking about the rules, there was the situation with the safety car um, and the safety car distance, the minimum distance that the lead driver is required to maintain from the uh, the safety car, which was the only sort of it was the only chink in Perez's armour um, in this race. It was the only kind of flaw to his race, I think, the only real one, only meaningful one, um, which was that he failed to maintain the uh, the 10 car length distance to the safety car. Um, and apparently it was he didn't just dip below this once. There were kind of three occasions under the safety car when, when he, he kind of fell back beyond that. Um, and you know, and he got a five-second penalty, I believe, which was enough, obviously, with the seven-second deficit to um, uh, uh, that, that that Charles had at the end of the race. That was enough for him to keep the win. Um, what uh, what do we think about that? I was really surprised how lenient this was. So, I, I mean, I I do think in a way it would have been unfair for him to lose it. Um, Singapore is obviously quite a difficult because it's got so many corners because it's very tight staying both with the safety car in an F1 car and not on top of it and, and kind of maintaining that gap because you obviously want to hang back because this safety car is going to go through corners much slower than a Formula 1 car. So, like, I, I do get that there's... kind of, And when there's only one line as well, like, you don't want to find yourself in a position where you're having to evade the safety car. So I can totally accept that, that there were some circumstances around the... Um, the specifics of this race. Uh, but what surprises me is that in Formula 3 in Zandvoort, um, Oliver Behrman did the same thing and he got a 30-second penalty. Um, wow. So, yeah. Uh, just And there's there's been some really harsh, like, victory-stripping things uh, for... Um, uh, for Junior Series drivers who've done the same thing. So... Yeah, I am a little bit surprised because they quite often with this kind of thing, they really clobber F1 because they're meant to lead by example. Mm. Um, uh, there's like a prior one from somewhere. Vettel got five seconds um, for doing something, but I don't think he was in the lead at the time. Um, because you're meant to maintain the dif- distance or no greater than 10 lengths between cars as well as, as whatever. Um um, once you're in a queue, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that they didn't just out of principle throw the book at Perez, just because that does tend to be how they they behave when it's something that they punish juniors and uh, or like when it's such a standardised FIA rule across series. Mm. Yeah, and I mean it, uh, there was yeah Vettel in in Hungary in 2010. Uh, I think he got a drive-through actually for that one, um, and it, it did pretty much cost him the win. Um, it was a slightly slightly different situation, as you say, because he was in second at the time and Weber was in the lead. And for whatever reason, um, Weber didn't drop back from the safety car uh, when it was when it was signalled that the safety car was coming in, and. Um, for whatever reason, he stuck fairly close to the safety car, and I think Seb expected him to drop back, and he dropped back, and and I think it was only briefly beyond that ten car car length distance. But yeah, he got quite a. It was a drive through penalty. So so what's the what's the the loss with a drive through? It's like thirty seconds or something. 
Yeah, so that that was why Behrman's was so big. It was because it was a convert, a post race converted drive through. Right, right. Yeah, so that's obviously the standard penalty, and the, it was slightly weird as well in which the the way in which the stewards um, was that they ne- immediately announced that it would be investigated after the race when they still had hours and hours of race left in which to come to a decision, which suggested actually that they kind of maybe they wanted to talk to Perez, get his side of it. I don't know. Um, but also, and then they, they kind of said that they accepted that there was an, there was a clear infringement. Um, they took his mitigation, his kind of, his sort of plea of mitigation was that the conditions were such that he had that, that, you know, it was unsafe to, to not maintain that distance. And, and they kind of said that they rejected that argument, but then they kind of took it into account anyway. Um, and and so it was a bit strange. It was another kind of one of those slightly. It left a slightly bitter taste in the mouth from just from the way it was handled. I felt. Don't know if that kind of feels like in um, was it Abu Dhabi or no Jeddah when they came over the when um Michael Massey came over the radio and said, "What position would you like to start?" And it all kind of feels very hmm. similar vibes to that. In my opinion, like let's ask them what they did. Oh, they we say we did nothing wrong. Okay, then that's what we'll go with. Mm. I think their statement was one of the funniest parts, where they sort of said, um, "You know, we don't think it was affected by by the weather, but we accept that it could have been affected by the weather." Yeah, and it was just a, a little bit contradictory of um, you know the, the statement contradicted itself, um, but you know. And given the scrutiny they're under since last season, it's it does feel like they should be they should be really solid on this kind of stuff. And it's disappointing that that they still seem kind of variable. And as Hazel I mean, says, just generally, there was also quite a lot of questionable behaviour behind the safety car. Um, yeah. Like it, there was quite a few like drivers really pulling alongside other drivers, or even seemingly possibly getting ahead um like generally and i i I don't think it's totally unreasonable to to give a bit of allowance for the constraints of the track in singapore especially in the wet um (laughs) like i said you know the corners come quite fast you're not quite sure where the safe how far ahead of you the safety car is you don't want to go too fast and hoon around the corner into it obviously so and 10 car lengths is actually not very much um and is relatively difficult to continuously judge round corners um but and i also think you know various factors like the driver's exhaustion concentration that kind of thing like yeah well the other thing of course was was sloppy behavior but it, it was sort of unusually sloppy like it's pretty rare for drivers no matter how like awful you might think some drivers that have been in F1 have been, um, at least since you know the the 2010s, there really haven't been like that many who are properly, completely, totally inexperienced or whatever. Um, and um, uh, so very few tacky news. Um, mm. But the yeah, the just unusually bad driving. Like, and, and throughout the whole Grand Prix, I mean, like, because I made a joke on Twitter, like, 
a couple of days beforehand because a lot of people were saying that like a lot of F1 Twitter won't have seen a Singapore Grand Prix because the last one was in 2019. Um, and, and obviously lots of people kind of got into to F1 over lockdown. Um, and uh, so I said, you know, the Singapore Grand Prix is a bit like an E-Prix without any overtaking. Um, and I, I obviously I was playing, but like actually in terms of driving... There was some quite Formula E activities, um, and I say that obviously with a lot of love for Formula E, um, and uh, but fully in acknowledgement that that because of the way the cars drive, which is very badly, there's sometimes some um, very questionable stuff. And I I wonder how much these new cars are, which are hard enough to drive on any circuit, are just sort of not quite capable of something like Singapore at the moment, or at least. Yeah, like maybe, maybe none of the teams have quite enough of a grip on how the downforce should work, on how the setup should work, on how they can get the tyres warm and, and whatever for for a circuit as incredibly challenging as Singapore. Yeah, well, there was that instance where um, Max just going back to the safety car driving issues, where Max completely pulled right next to Lando and even when a little bit ahead Lando thought over the radio he was like that was very close and even though like you say it is difficult because it was going around a corner but it's definitely not safe when you're behind the safety car and you've got so many other drivers so close by you. I mean a lot of the drivers were complaining as well about the speed of the safety car weren't they but obviously you know the job of the safety car. Yeah and you know the job of a safety car is uh, obviously is to is to give the marshals, you know, ample free track space to clear up whatever they need to clear up. So obviously, you know, the safety car team drive it at the speed that they think is necessary to do so. Um, but I suppose when you factor that in, you've got drivers that are desperately trying to keep a set of, you know, tyres that are cooling down every lap warm. And, you know, when you are behind the safety car, the only way that you can do that really is to drop back a bit, um, you know, give the tyres a bit of burn and then drop back again. And there's lots of factor into it, but um, I would agree generally that the, the penalty for Perez, it seems reasonably inconsistent with what the FIA should have been potentially dishing out. I mean, I'm so torn because I, I do think it was a, it was a really great drive from him and it was a standout drive in the field and it kind of deserved the win but alternatively that penalty is is yeah and, and it was hmm. and when you've got the i mean inconsistency between f race f1 races is one thing but inconsistency between f1 and the juniors formula i think is is pretty unforgivable but um it looks like this is something that that motorsport hasn't quite got it hasn't got quite got right yet and we can only hope that it improves under scrutiny speaking Absolutely. of rules is it um have we have we kind of done the the grand prix now is anything yeah else? i was gonna say i it feels like the other big story probably i think we exhausted the grand prix it was an exhausting grand prix <laughs> but yeah so the other the other big story of the week in formula one the cost cap yeah, which I think Red Bull, it came out today, Red Bull have admitted that they did in six different cases, I think. 
Or that was the story where it's well, six different parts of the car or something like that, where they weren't sure, something like that. There's the six different six elements items. of the submission, which could be, which the Red Bull may have interpreted their accounting differently to the way that the FIA would, thinks it should interpret the accounting. And this was kind of always going to happen, and this was why there was a trial run year for the cost cap, where um, it was like, get your house in order, see if you can... um, Because if you remember, there wasn't really a cost cap in 2019. But, yeah, there were like some dry run years in an effort to try and get all of the teams to understand how they did have to account for this and submit it. Because obviously every every F1 team has different structures. Every organisation is structured differently. So like if you look at um, actually the various bits of McLaren are, are separate legally and, and in companies in terms of entity. But McLaren Racing, for instance, uh, has a, a Formula E team, an Extreme E team and a uh, an IndyCar team as well as the F1 team, which obviously you wouldn't put any of the costs associated with those into the F1 cost cap. Um, whereas, uh, for instance, uh, Alpha Tauri is very much just Alpha Tauri. Um, or, you know, so, so there's lots of different, and, and some places like, you know, Ferrari has a junior program, which would fall somewhere roughly in probably the same accounting structure organizationally as the F1 team, but doesn't count to the cost cap and stuff. So there's there's all kinds of things where they did try and sort of for a few years, try and make sure that teams understood how they should be accounting for it and what was covered in the cost cap and what wasn't. Um, so yeah, there was a, there was initial kind of like dry run process to, to try and iron that out. What seems to have happened and it seems to be around Red Bull obviously started Red Bull powertrains um, uh, in an effort to deal with the fact Honda were leaving. Um, Red Bull powertrains is not covered by the F1 cost cap, or it's covered by a different cap. Um, So it wouldn't be covered by the F1 team cost cap. Um, But whether any of that has somehow been misaccounted or like where things should be balanced how red bull is classifying things it could be that these are all completely normal queries though there are probably some with every team um but or it could be that they're not i mean this was this was my conspiracy theory when when the whole porsche thing um broke down with with red bull um, and you know, I was, I was kind of thinking for the whole time, if they've got this deal with Porsche, which has been kind of bubbling away for some time. And then there's also this separate thing going on of Honda saying, well, actually we're not quite pulling out. Um, we're, we're still going to, you know, maintain a presence and so on. So I think, well, what on earth was Red Bull powertrains actually for? What were they proceeding with it for? And I, I developed this conspiracy theory um, which, you know, I will say now, I'm not going to be fair to Red Bull Racing. I'm just, it's got past, way past the point where I can be objective about Red Bull Racing, I'm afraid to say. I've got, like, horned arrangement syndrome. Um, <laughs> and my, I was kind of thinking that 
you know, Red Bull powertrains, there's, there's probably scope there for cheating the cost cap. If you've got things like, well, power unit integration, cooling, um, you know, associated systems, um, stuff like that, which kind of is, is sort of halfway between, is, is in that kind of, not a gray area as such, but, you know, the power unit and the chassis are not a discrete thing. There are, they are designed to work together. So, and you've got well, this cost cap. I mean, hell, that's in McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair point. Just, um, just if there's any lawyers listening, it's alleged breaches of the cost cap, not cheating, Mr. Willis. Yes, um, and it's create creative. It's like not just the same thing. No, let's let's. Let... Uh, they're only alleged. Yes, alleged, Sorry, a, a, alleged, alleged cheating. Alleged cheating. Uh, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's... No, it's yeah. Just, no, just, no. just as I'm sitting here listening quietly, I'm just also thinking, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> to be honest, you know, it would just it, a legal it, it would it would solve a lot of problems for me if I was in prison right now. So you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but it's uh yeah um but yeah so so uh, and aston martin as well have have been named as being a team that um that, that is there are questions over its interpretation of the cost cap um i don't know what's i mean there was a story today about red bull and, and the six areas i haven't heard any more about aston martin so i don't know what's going on with that side of things um I think as far as I know, as you know, there's a huge amount of, or, or as people probably know, there's a huge amount of investment going into the Aston Martin Formula One team. It's building massive new facilities. I assume it's something to do with that. Um, yeah, that's... And that the way that sense. money's been accounted for in terms of building and and personnel recruitment, probably. Um, I, I suspect that personnel is going to be one of the big, big like sticking points that that is a problem about the cost cap more than anything else um in terms of um yeah in in terms of teams struggling or either having to creatively interpret which part of their organization people actually work for or struggling to maintain headcount. We know that teams have had to, to move people to other areas or to, um, yeah, re- restructure themselves in order to get below, get to a headcount or a salary headcount where it's, it's, it's possible to account for it. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, um, yeah, they both, both teams, and I mean, there was lots of stuff that was said in the paddock, and uh, I do understand, you know, the fury of of people who felt that either confidential information had been leaked, or that they were being particularly unfairly targeted. As far as I know, every single team has been asked about uh, for details on their submissions. Um, so it's not that this is a new phenomenon. It's just that we're now getting close to a to where the FIA may actually make a decision and say, no, you did breach that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think for some of the teams, clearly I don't think Haas have been massively pressed about the cost cap in terms of 
worrying about hitting it. Um, but for the teams that were trying to to kind of wind down their uh, spending to that level, I, th- I think it it has been complicated and and yeah, the the personnel one, I I I find it quite. I think it's difficult to justify having the personnel costs bar the drivers and the top three most uh, highest paid people in the team included because that feels quite unfair on having to keep the other salaries down to to whatever they need or having to balance those salaries against development of a car or or whatever it is um, within an artificial cap. I, I, I don't know if it I'm I think that it's okay that that that's structured like that I do appreciate there probably had to be some limit um but I suspect that for instance uh there should be uh, a significant portion that is allocated to say the traveling team to race weekend team members and and things do we think that a year one fines are more likely as they codify what the accounting practices will need to be going forward so that some of the more heinous penalties that are in the regulations might not be triggered and they will just fine or reduce caps for year two because they're not going to retrospectively strip people of of wins like the Damoclesian Verstappen thing they were talking about last week. No, I, I don't think they're going to change the outcome of the championship. I, I think, um, I think there will be smacked wrists. I, I suspect there will be fines. Um, if a team was found to have deceived the system on a, a massive level, um, then yeah, I think you would see something pretty major. Like if if a team had just like com- submitted completely false accounts or or I don't know completely made up or like somehow hidden a huge amount of their spending or something, but I don't get the impression that that's what this is. I I get the impression that it's that things haven't been classified correctly but have been declared. Um, so. Yeah, I I can't really see. Although there are some ultimately some very major sporting penalties, um, there for instances like Spygate, um, not for. So yeah, there's some something on on the level of Spygate, but financial would probably incur those penalties. I don't get the impression of that. That is what these are. Goodness, if, if Ron if Ron got a ninety million dollar fine for being who he was, can you imagine what they do to Horner? <laughs> I feel like it could be where they announce saying, "Yes, Red Bull have found a loophole in the rules. Nothing will happen this year, but next year this will be illegal." Sort mm-hmm. of situation, saying, yeah. "Well, we're not going to do anything about it now, but from now on, you can't do it." I think it's kind of interesting that, that a few days ago you had Christian Horner basically strongly implying that they would sue anyone who implied that that there had been any wrongdoing uh, with regard to the cost cap and then a couple of days later they're basically saying oh yeah we did this but we thought it was okay um so (laughs) you know max saying people should shut their mouths (laughs) 
stuff like it feels a little bit like the whole um racing point as it was then i think um response to the pink mercedes you know and they came out swinging and, and were very angry about that but then you know the rules were changed and they weren't penalized over it though weren't they i don't think um I think they, they, they were oh they were oh yeah yeah, yeah. um they were but, fined weren't they yeah there, but there was wasn't it over like break ducts or point. something yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. I mean, because that, that's a good example, actually. So, like, for instance, completely cloning another um, team's car wasn't really the problem. And what it came down to was some very specific interpretations of these very specific brake duct parts. Yeah. <clears throat> Which, um, yeah, I, it feels like this is a similar thing. So, like... If Racing Point had like basically 3D printed the Mercedes, um, then maybe there would have been or like it, it initially people were saying, you know, either Mercedes had sold it to them or it was a, it, this huge espionage piece of espionage to have just completely reproduced it. And what it came down to was an incredibly technical detail and the consequences were quite significant, um, but nevertheless, yeah, I I suspect you know this is going to be similar. It, it'll be everyone or everyone's implying you know that Red Bull were able to maintain this level of development that they had throughout the season last year that has fed into this year. Um, that they've you know colossally cheated. That they've kept personnel where where other teams had to get rid of them. Um, that there's been you know some colossal piece of cheating. And it's going to come down to kind of like Red Bull said that this was spending on marketing and the FIA say that actually it's spending on, on racing functions or something. If it's a li- It feels a little bit like, with the racing point situation, it felt a little bit like getting Al, Al Capone on, on his um, on tax avoidance. Um, but, um, you know, maybe that's that's probably, unf- that's for the, again, for the lawyers... That that comparison is unfair, um, but um, but yeah, I mean it's it's it has implications. It has implications for last year's championship, and it has implications for this year's championship because it's all about the development and the the, the sort of the share of development that you can you can put on this year's car and last year's car, or is it you know or yeah, uh, last year's car and this year's car um, retrospectively, but. Um, you're right. I mean, it doesn't sound like what is being talked about is is really kind of huge. Um, but you know, it does. Given how tight things were at the end of the day, I can you know you can understand people feeling aggrieved. Um, you know, particularly over Mercedes. I think a lot you know people didn't have trouble feeling aggrieved over last year. But you know, it does feel like. Um, it's another thing that just just adds to that slight question mark and just you know not a not great taste in the mouth. I think. Moving us on, Adam. Hello. How was your experience of getting tickets for the Grand Prix next year? That we all decided we were going to go <laughs> to the six hours of Silverstone that we can't go to now. Because it ain't happening. Because it ain't happening. Yeah, <laughs> that's 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 to move move things along a bit here. I've been quiet, but I've also seen how long you guys have been going on about one of the most boring races I've ever listened to in the car. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, the Silverstone ticket situation was um, not Silverstone's finest hour, let's put it that way. Um, compared to some, I actually had it relatively good by the sounds of it. Um, the way the system worked was very similar to what you'd expect when you're buying gig tickets or something like that. You know, you 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 jump on when they say they're, they're for sale and you you sit in a queue and you watch a red bar go along your screen and then you get a 15-minute countdown and then you have all of five minutes to actually get your tickets and get them paid for, um, which is which five minutes sounds like a long time, but when you're essentially trying to figure out what it is exactly you need, um, it's not it's not that long, especially considering in my case, um, and this seems to be the case for a lot of people, um, the website wasn't accepting card payments which is handy. Um, I was lucky that I was in a position where I could pay using PayPal, which worked. Uh, my cousin uh, jumped on line at the same time I did, which was half past 11 in the morning on the first day the tickets were up, and by 3 o'clock in the afternoon was still in the queue. Um, I jumped on just so that you know we'd got two computers basically trying to get through and before he'd even managed to get on to the point of buying his tickets I'd got on and bought them for him um, so I managed to get on twice and buy two sets of tickets in the time that Dan had sat waiting to be allowed in and Dan's experience sounds pretty universal for what most people experienced Um Obviously, we discussed it on Twitter. We spoke about Silverstone's statements about unprecedented um, demand and all that sort of thing, yet they'd brought this all upon themselves with this dynamic pricing they've got for the tickets. Um, you know, they essentially told people you need to get on and get them quickly and then moaned about the fact that everyone was trying to get on and get them quickly. Um, so it was, it was pretty shambolic. They pulled the tickets from sale on the first day um, to fix the system, and then the same thing happened on day two as well. Um, and just to give you an idea, uh, Sophie and I paid 219 quid for our weekend tickets for the Grand Prix, and by the time they had sold out, they were selling the same tickets for 419 quid on the website. They'd gone up 200 quid, um, and I don't think there's any excuse for that whatsoever. I don't think that demand or whatever it might be gives them any reason to increase the price of general admission tickets by that much in this in the space of two or three days um yeah so that was yeah that was it it was it was good fun it was it was very stressful um and it was made worse by the fact that when we got actual confirmation of, a, of the bookings via uh via emails uh, they were wrong um, so then I had to chase Silverstone up and say, can you confirm that my booking is correct? Please, please tell me it's right because I don't want to have to go through all that again. And thankfully it was, but yeah, um, not that they will, but I think Silverstone have got an awful lot to answer for. Some of their, the dynamic pricing in particular is something that I, I, I do not think they should be allowed to do. I think they should set a price. They should tell people what those tickets are going to cost before they go on sale. And that's what they should stay at. Completely agree. Because people have to budget agree. for it. And uh, you know, it feels like that. Do you remember that, that weird kind of sudden death um, qualifying that they tried 
a few years ago that was a complete and utter failure. It kind of feels like buying tickets, but that, um, mm. and that you just have this kind of race. And like the next step is what maybe just making people fight for tickets um, or something like that. It's just like, Silverstone, what are you playing at? And I know they're a business and everything, but they don't have to like advertise being evil just because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 as you say, you know, my wife and I are not in a position where we can just, um, you know, we can just spend that sort of money. We, we, we save for it all year round. Um, we both put a little bit of money in a pot every month. And, you know, that is what we use to buy our tickets. And we base it roughly on what the previous year's tickets cost plus a bit more because you can, you can factor in the fact there's going to be an increase. You accept that there's probably going to be an increase on the ticket price year on year. But I think what the worst thing about it was, was the fact that this dynamic pricing on their website was changing the price of the ticket. As you well know, it was refreshing every 90 seconds and it wasn't going up every 90 seconds, but in some cases it was going up hourly, you know, at least. Um, and they, they were doing this whilst people were actually in, in a, you know, weren't able to actually buy tickets because the website wasn't working, you know, and people's payments weren't going through. And I, I really just don't see how that's fair. I didn't buy tickets because I don't have the funds as a broke uni student. But one of my friends, who is also a broke uni student, but did manage to dig out the funds, managed to get on and buy them all within 15 minutes, right when it opened. So it just shows that some people had no trouble at all. And for whatever reason, some people had tremendous problems. I mean, I didn't even look at it, look at buying them because I'd seen the prices after their stupid members £90 a year thing and thought, you know what, that's not worth the money. Um but I did get the email that I think a lot of people got saying tickets will be suspended until tomorrow. I just thought, what is going on? I mean, I've sat in a queue for two hours trying to buy Harry Styles tickets and it wasn't this mental. I think that's the thing about it is that, you know, you've got websites like C-Tickets and Ticketmaster or whatever that you buy your gig tickets from um, that, you know, they're selling tickets for concerts for their one, one-offs or two-offs or whatever. And they're selling hundreds of thousands of these tickets, and you know they don't have these problems. Um, and as I say, the, you know, the, the, I think the biggest kick in the teeth for anybody trying to buy tickets was the fact that Silverstone bought this upon themselves, you know, with their dynamic pricing, and then, you know, to then have the, the sort of audacity to come out and say, "Well, we didn't expect this to happen," um, is a bit silly on their part. Has any other circuit done this in the past? Is this a completely new thing to Silverstone this year? Or is, is there some precedent to this? Yeah, I, I, I can't say for sure, but I've never experienced it anywhere else. I, I don't think it's normally been something. So it is... I, I haven't really heard of it being used in sports contexts very much before. Um, it is something that, for instance, um, gets used for mega events like the Olympics. Um, you might remember that there was actually quite a lot of ticket price variation for 2012. So it's some similar system to that, I would guess. Um, and and it, it definitely gets used for con- uh, concerts. I haven't heard of it. Um, and obviously plane tickets and things like that, is, that's always mm. the case. But um, I haven't heard of it for a, a Grand Prix before in any other context. 
maybe Miami or something might have used it. Mm. I get the general impression that, that the organisers kind of feel like attending a Grand Prix is a, a kind of one-off for most people. And that, you know, w- with the Olympics, you can kind of understand it because to experience the London Olympics, um, you know, you might be willing to, to, to go slightly beyond what you can typically afford just to get that experience, knowing that, you know, it might be another 30 or 40 or 50 years or whatever before London hosts another Olympics. But with the Grand Prix, it's a yearly thing. and But it feels like they're, they're viewing it as if, you know, people should see it as a once-in-a-lifetime thing to do. You know, I've got to break the bank and buy these tickets um, and get to the Grand Prix. Um, you know, where for some people, you know, you know, we, we, you know, we want to go every year, but it's, it is nearing the point now where it's becoming difficult financially for us to do that, um, which I think is sad. And the amount of people as well on Twitter that, you know, pulled the plug for two reasons, one, because of a situation with the website and um, the other, because by the time that they actually managed to get on to buy the tickets, they'd gone up 150, 200 quid and they couldn't no longer afford them. Um, so people that have been going to Silverstone for the last 10 or 15 years or whatever to watch the Grand Prix, you know, for, for the first time, they're having to just go, you know what, I just can't afford it anymore. Um, and that is, I think, only going to get worse. Let's talk about fuel. Hello. And we have just <laughs> the person for that. Because yeah. I find this fascinating, the idea of sustainable fuels. And, of course, Paddy Lowe is doing his zero thing as well but this very strange debate going on about sustainable fuel in formula one was the bit that really caught my eye from from my list here uh, and also that if i remember correctly on your first visit to us hazel you called using formula two as a test bed for formula one um, which is their new excuse for this what is a sustainable fuel is it actually sustainable and yeah. What is it? Well, I, I will I will try not to uh, add an entire other podcast here. Um, but as as uh, people may or may not know, this is sort of my specialist subject. Um, uh, so sustainable fuels, in terms of um, what that means for specifics, effectively is about as specific as just saying fuels. So a sustainable fuel just means something um, that is uh, not made from fossil fuels. Um, the actual uh, sustainable credentials of it could be quite poor, um, but there's there's two sort of main methods, um, one of which is to make uh, an ethanol or a methanol, which is then transformed or kind of refined. It's, it's combined with extra hydrogen and turned into and, and various other um, additives that you can you can put in if you want um, and uh, then turned into a petrol or something um, whatever you want to get out the other end basically um, and there's also building up on a molecular level um, so all fuels are just uh, or all kind of the the type of hydrocarbon fuels that we've been using in combustion engines are just hydrogen and carbon in various strings so you just molecularly i say just this is actually quite a a hand wavy almost alchemical science process um where 
uh, hydrogen and carbon, preferably from carbon capture and preferably green uh, hydrogen from elect- uh, that's been generated from ele- uh, electrolysis with water, splitting water into hydrogen and um, oxygen uh, are combined to make a fuel that in theory, because of the carbon that you are removing from the atmosphere, has potential to be carbon neutral or depending on the carbon capture even negative but but in reality that's very rarely actually where the carbon is coming from at the moment and direct carbon capture is very very small so um the difference between sustainable fuels and regular fuels uh, is very little the lower so you can make them as we've seen with Sebastian Vettel running um, some old cars, but using sustainable fuel in them at Grand Prix this year, the the um, uh, the Williams uh, and the very old Aston Martin, the Green P, um, he got sustainable fuel companies to to brew some up for both of them. Le Mans ran on sustainable fuel this year, based on a from a wine runoff product. There have been sustainable fuels introduced or percentages of sustainable fuels. Often that means increased ethanol, um, such as has happened in Formula One this year. Obviously, they moved from 5% ethanol to 10% ethanol in the fuel mix. Um, but yeah, it effectively what it means is a, a hopefully less harmful fuel so either it will have come from a process that introduces no additional fossil carbon into the atmosphere which does make a meaningful difference because the less fossil fuels we dig up the better Um, or it could even come from a process that although it won't be energy neutral um, could be potentially getting close to carbon neutral um, none of them are perfect and it's it's not a simple solution it's also quite you can make the biofuels on quite a, a decently mass scale now um, certainly nothing like the the kind of existing oil industry but like you can generate a pretty sizable amount um, synthetic fuels the molecular con- uh, constructed fuels are much lower volume at the minute and and a are much much more expensive to to try and do both in terms of the energy that you have to put in because of course um you or you don't get more energy out than you put into making a fuel um and that's why fossil fuels are, are so great and convenient because the earth put a lot of pressure and heat and and time into them um but yeah so when when we're constructing new fuels there's a lot of complications and, and there's a lot of various things. Um, the reason that they haven't really been introduced in Formula One so far is partly because sustainable fuels have not really been part of a conversation for a significant amount of time. And the other reason is that they are lower energy. They are potentially harder to consistently make um and and of course formula one fuel mixes have to be completely exact uh the same as as they always are when they're homologated at the start of the year with the fluid suppliers for each team and um yeah there, there are definitely some challenges 
in introducing sustainable fuels to um to a series as incredibly sort of exact in terms of what it needs as as formula one is so 2026 is realistic then instead of what was it 20 was it next year it was originally supposed to be wasn't it yeah i mean i i would say um yes it probably is realistic um in terms of um although the team's can start developing now um, with their their fuel providers, and of course the power unit specifications are are out for twenty twenty six. It's not it's not a trivial thing to make an F one grade fuel, whatever you're doing. Um, it's especially not a trivial thing to develop a power unit that can extract the most out of a particular fuel and and to work out exactly what you need in terms of that. Um, So in terms of the way that uh, the fuel burns, in terms of the way that it's recovered, things like that, um, just exactly what they need in terms of the the chambers even um, and and various valving solutions, uh, yeah, they they will still be running on essentially a petrol. so it will be a case of, of working out what is realistic for them to actually, for fuel providers like Petronas or Shell or whoever a team's um, provider is, what they can actually make in sufficient quantities and consistently enough. And um, and bearing in mind that, you know, things like synthetic fuel is really being made at, at pathetically low volume. So you probably would although you would probably be able to make enough for, for a Formula 1 team at the moment, it actually might be something that requires quite a considerable scale-up to be able to kind of consistently deliver it um, all around the world as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a non-trivial process, uh, both from the technology side in terms of de- designing the power units, not because chemically there will be a huge difference. As I said, you know, you can make the um you can make it to whatever specification you need. So you can make something that is that would run in an engine from this year, as things stand at the moment. It's just that it might not run to the maximum efficiency or there might be other adaptations that have to be made. They're all things that, that are at the extremities of Formula One and where you wouldn't necessarily notice it in a road car you wouldn't notice it on a show run with an old car but but this is f1 so it's not just the case of them whacking up the the e number on us and it's suddenly being sustainable it's 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 scale it's volume and it's consistency those are the the sort of three the three kickers that are they're there at the moment yeah and it's also i mean it's teams needing to make a call about whether they're going down the bioethanol route um whether they're and the the types of sustainable fuel um, that uh, Formula One is talking about is, you know, if it's bioethanol, then it has to come from genuine genuine municipal waste, um, or from uh, kind of byproducts. It can't be generated in the way that an awful lot of ethanol is at the moment, which is from essentially feedstock. Um, and um, if you're going down the synthetic route, then there has to be an element of carbon capture. There has to be, you know. Um, 
both of those are good stipulations to have that that you can't just cheese this um but yeah the it's non trivial to to plan all those things in to produce a fuel of a formula 1 standard um and yeah uh, like the reason well i i don't fully agree with what is being done in formula 2 and formula 3 um i've been reassured repeatedly by formula 2 formula 3 that there will be no reliability issues or no increased reliability issues uh related to increasing from next year they're going to a significant percentage of initially bio-derived uh, sustainable fuels um, and then upping that percentage and then switching that percentage over uh, to a synthetic fuel um, and then kind of it actually Formula 2 and 3 don't actually get to 100% sustainable fuels until the year after F1 does, which is a little bit odd. Um, but the, uh, yeah, again, it's... You can make a fuel that is compatible to the engine. Whether it will deliver the same power output, whether it will, you know, whether it will behave the same, it, that's a different different question. And, and kind of, I don't know whether it's acceptable to do experimentation in terms of trying to find, uh, you know, where the sweep spots are in, in terms of um, working out that power density or what has to be adjusted to engines um, in series where drivers are paying to drive and where, like, a bad season, an unreliable season, can just break your career. Um, and, yeah, I... When... So this was initially announced uh, in January in a in a talk to the Institute, Royal Institute of Engineers, and I asked uh, the Formula Two teams about it, and they were quite sort of they they were clear to say that they were in favour of sustainability, but but that also they weren't ex- um, going to accept any risk uh, on their drivers' parts because it's not fair um, and. I was told very firmly at the time that Formula 2 and 3 would be moving to sustainable fuel, and that was that. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think... I also think there's a little bit of... You know, you can't... You can't really compare a Formula 2 or Formula 3 engine to a Formula 1 one anyway, so I'm not... I'm not I, I don't know how much I buy that there's a huge amount to be gained by... Formula One by running them in in Formula Two and Three, but may, maybe there is, and and I'm simply being too cynical. Um, it is a positive step to improve the sustainability of Formula Two and Three, regardless. So yeah, there we go. Uh, I probably only added a, a twenty forty minutes there on sustainable fuels. I'll shut up now. We should have got someone on who knew what they were on about, really. <laughs> <laughs> but is it i well, mean is is the fia kind of like are they using the junior series to sort of 
push their environmental credentials while letting F1 off the hook a little bit? Or is it, you know, is it just that it's more straightforward? Um, you know, it's kind of more straightforward with a one-make series and a single engine and so on. So to to just go ahead and do that and while, while F1 is more complex? I think it's, I mean, it's much more straightforward when you just say, okay, you did have ELF as the fuel supplier. They've had the same fuel since GP2. Um, or since the first year of GP2, actually. Um, and you've had this fuel for this longer now. Aramco is the fuel supplier and you're having this fuel. Yeah. Um, it's There is only one fuel formulation for Formula 2 and Formula 3. Um, and they get what they're given. And the championship buys the fuel and gives it to the teams. So, or sells it onto the team. Like it's... it's it's not the same case as with Formula One teams where you need to be able to regulate what Ferrari is doing with Shell, what Mercedes is doing with Petronas, like et cetera. Like everyone's got a different fuel partner. Um, yeah, I, I think it's not completely nonsense to say that there is stuff to learn, certainly in regulatory terms and in terms of what they can expect and in terms of the data that they can look at and in terms of um, what can be developed. There's there's plenty to learn. Um, it, well, I mean, all fuel contracts in motorsport are basically advertising anyway, so it's sort of... There's, there's a lot of different stuff going on there. I would say it's a it's a way of deepening a partnership with Aramco, if you if you want to um, be maximally cynical about it. And this is probably a question for another time, to be honest. But I mean, how long has Formula One realistically got with some kind of internal combustion engine? I mean, are we talking sort of you know twenty thirty? Is it is that kind of you know, are we still 2050 going to be, you know, suck, squeeze, bang, blow? Um, I mean, I, I think there will probably be a combustion element for a very long time, to be honest. Um, combustion engines aren't particularly set to disappear. But, um, yeah, I think, and actually something like Formula One is exactly the kind of use for something like sustainable fuel, like molecular fuels, because yeah, you can't realistically make equivalent volumes, even of of kind of like bespoke fuels. Like it's just not possible. Um, but for a racing series, yeah, like the because you know the amount of fuel that is burned in Formula One is very small. If the logistics can be greened as well, then that's that's a different um, area in in terms of freight and things being moved around. Whereas actually the 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 actual stuff going bang in the car is is a very 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 small percentage and you, you can already see that they're you know limiting the amount of fuel um and things for next year so uh, despite some interesting reports in the german press that said they would or not uh, next year sorry for for 2026 um there there will actually be less fuel we use per race and stuff so we shall see mm. In in my simple brain, that would be an obvious thing to do. Would be to start reducing 
the max fuel rate, say you can't have 100 kilos, it's now 90, and then bring bring it down. You can get efficiency by just burning less of it, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's certainly going to be part of it. And it's why, you know, people, because people talk about like, oh, bring back refueling, blah, blah, blah. And it's never coming back. That's not happening um, for lots of reasons. But but one of them is the efficiency angle. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I will stop talking because I'm aware that I can just crack on about this forever. Um, but yeah, I think I think forcing the power units to prioritise efficiency over... Uh, consumption is is completely correct and and is the only viable way to run a racing series which is based on or which styles itself as using um you know the most elite the most impressive the most forward thinking uh technologies of of the current day and you know at, at one point that would have been seeing exactly how many liters you could force through uh a v10 um and now that that is a very very different thing in terms of what we think efficiency and performance or or what we think performance looks like in automotive technology and racing technology um yeah uh and and people do tune into formula one for for that extreme edge of performance um and otherwise there is classic car racing uh the dream i'm very aware of time which is why i've i've actually started talking to try to hurry you lot along a bit dear listener who's been still with us that's great because we do have one few more things that we're, we're gonna have to come back to but there was the f3 test with abby pulling chloe chambers and Teresa babikova he says butchering the nice lady's name um, oh, uh, and, yeah, and she wasn't Teresa Babakova because um, she has injured her, or she got injured in a race just prior. So um, she was replaced by Nerea Marti. How? How? What was? What was the word that's come out of it? it? The the reports I read were, as just a fan, I couldn't I couldn't really see what what they were saying in them. So what what did you hear, hear about it? Was it a positive experience? Because I did hear that there was no physical limitation issues. All, all of that silliness that they've yeah. been throwing around so the the point of these tests is um it's an assessment it's an information gathering exercise both for the drivers um who get an opportunity to drive f3 equipment testing time is very important for any drivers um and also uh, for the fia um so or for formula two and formula three where they can gain information about if there are physical limitations or if there are things that for whatever reason uh, would prevent um, women being competitive in Formula 3, um, then they can begin to flag them. Now, there have been uh, a couple of things that have come up. One of them, uh, Hamdar Al-Kabasi is a very short driver. Um, she's got quite small hands, um, something I can relate to, although I'm the opposite of very short. Um, and uh, getting her into a, a comfortable position in the in the cockpit was difficult. Um, so that's something for them to consider. That's that's something um, to look at. Um, and also having steering wheels where it's, it's just a little bit easier to adjust where the driver holds them and, and stuff. Um, 
so but the, I mean it wasn't really a limitation to her it was just it, as a comfort thing she wasn't especially comfortable um and and you know ideally for safety you you want the driver to be comfortable you want them to be able to to easily reach all the uh, bits of the steering wheel you don't want them to be in a they will be in some stress and and physical discomfort in the car because driving is physical um but you don't want them to start out that way um but yeah the the overall thing that has come out of it is that there are no reasons um there's there's no physical limitation on on women participating in formula three um or formula two or presumably formula one i don't think that's a huge shock given the the very small teenagers we see sort of you know we've (laughs) we've seen some some very um scrawny uh f2 f3 or even formula one drivers like if you think about 19 year old lando i don't think you can possibly uh start assuming that no woman could match his uh immense physical capabilities um or yuki sonoda Oh, exactly. Yeah. And he was really unfit when he started F1 as well. Um, Like for a driver. I mean, I'm sure he could have, you know. Well, no, he said in an interview, he really stepped it up for this year. And he actually, I think he said he ran more than 15 minutes and he thought he was dying. And that was (laughs) before pre-season this year. He he was a bit of lazy git. Um, But yeah, so... I, I, I don't think anyone was really expecting there to be a, a there to be an actual physical limitation, but it's good to kind of like knock that on the head and just say like no, we've looked. Um, and then to to also um, the other thing that they're looking into with this is where are the gaps? Why aren't girls getting to S three and performing? And what are the gaps in their preparation for arriving to F three? Um, to Formula 2 it's very difficult obviously for Formula 2 or 3 to do a huge amount about the fact that I've got an article coming out about this Um, but where the gap is happening is regional F4 so by the point of Formula uh, 3 and 2 it's very difficult for them to do anything about it um, in terms of what they can actually control Um, but they can at least look at if you get people without the necessarily with quite the preparation that you might see in their male peers then what could you do to try and help them like what can we do to help get some young female drivers who are prepared for formula three and are prepared to be competitive in formula three and so there's an element of uh of that um and to looking at what the gaps they have are what their questions are where there's the the gaps in the knowledge for the team it was ART they were working with to to work with them and assess with uh, them and and to sort of identify where they lack knowledge or or maybe lack um, specific experiences um, or where they lack skills because drivers have to develop skills Um, I personally felt it was a very positive um, test Uh, Victor Martin who just uh, won the um, Formula 3 title was there to to help um, the drivers and he was really good actually he was very like it, it's a bit the bar is on the floor or even subterranean but there are a lot of the he didn't have to be there um, all he had to do was set a, an example lap and I don't think he 
you know, he didn't have to do that. Even he could have just said, I'm knackered. I'm not doing it, mate. I've just won the Formula 3 title. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was... He was very interested in the in the test and very sort of like an active participant was helping all of the drivers was giving advice and stuff and he actually uh, he I interviewed him about it and about sort of the experience of being part of it and he said you know it's good good to have him there for the drivers to ask questions because the first time he tested an F three car he didn't have anyone like that as a reference um, and he could have done with the advice as it were and then he came back up to me about five minutes later and was like I didn't come across as like horribly patronizing there did I like it's not that I think and I was like no no obviously you know more about these cars than than the drivers who are getting in them for the first time today you've just won the title um uh like but he 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 was obviously kind of thinking about the dynamics and and kind of why he was there and and how he could help which um yeah just good to see really good lad yeah fantastic impressed by that actually um yeah it's quite kind of quite mature for a um was he in his early 20s i think um but uh yeah cool no that sounds really and it kind of sounds like actually when you describe it it sounds like the kind of thing that that maybe should have been done years ago but you know it's great that it's happening at all and um it probably is because there's all these sort of stupid question marks over um you know a, a ability and um preparation and and stuff like that and kind of and also the questions over the the female drivers who are racing now in w series and some of the other you know in some other series out there um like wec and um uh you know in indycar um to an extent uh, and F2, and, you know, whether the, the there's a question of whether we will get any of that generation into F1 at any point or into a, a you know, at least maybe into like a hypercar or, a, you know, a couple more IndyCar or something like that. Or, or are we really looking for the next generation who are not yet in F4 or something like that, uh, which I think would be a shame. Um, but, you know, how where do you think we are in terms of that progression? Big question, I know, but you know, <laughs> put you on the spot. But but you know, I, th- I think it's something that I've been interested in for a long time. And you know, I really want to see a woman in F one uh, being competitive in F one, and I don't see why it can't happen. You know, within that five years that that uh, that Stefano Domenicali was was talking about, saying not within five years. But I don't see why you know three four. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think five years felt like a very um, topish thing to say because. Uh, you know, the average junior career of a lot of the um, or, or the, the kind of cars career of a lot of the drivers who've recently made it to F1 as teenagers has not been five years. I think there's reason to believe that, that you know, there could still be a girl in carts who, who is on that trajectory. Um, I think realistically there are still significant other barriers um primarily you know the the numbers game in terms of the percentage of you know if you think about 100,000 carters the chance that any of them get into cars is very low the chance that any of them who get into cars get into formula 1 is 
I mean, like you're just adding zeros infinitely there. Um, so I think, I think although there is, there, there's better energy, there's, there's better activities being done to actually help, um, female drivers up the ladder, um, things like this. Um, I, I personally think that the FIA Ferrari thing is absolutely useless. Um, but, uh, I guess they're sort of doing something with one girl in regional F4 a year. Um, but the, yeah, and, and W series to actually quite a significant extent. I mean, I think, um, obviously we're recording this during possibly the death throes of W series, um, as it struggles for funding. And I think if this is the end of the series, then, then that's really unfortunate for lots of reasons. Um, not least the fact there's a lot of good people working very hard in it. Um, but the, um, the thing that it did, and I know that people have sort of said, well, it's not really getting any woman closer to F1. I do think it's a problem. It hasn't got any woman into F3 or into, or kind of moved that, but it has, on the other hand, got a woman into a significant advisory role in the Alpine Academy. It has got Abby pulling into the Alpine Academy or as an affiliate. You are seeing more um, interest in uh, female drivers in uh, Formula One academies, for instance, um, than, than there has been before. You, there has been a significant shift. Um, and I think although the W Series model hasn't necessarily done kind of what it wanted to do either so far or, or as a whole, if this is the end of it, um, then, but it is, it is doing something. And there, there is, I think it's very, I mean, you can't really cheese someone into F1 unless you've got a billionaire dad um, or a billionaire mum for gender equality. Um, but, because, uh, you know, um, Kylie Jenner could decide uh, to put one of her her child or children, I'm, I don't keep up with the Kardashians, um, uh, you know, straight into a cart tomorrow and then they could, they could be well on their way. Um, but the, um, yeah, the, I think some of the issues are being addressed some of the bias around it. There's unfortunately, there's still a lot of rubbish that gets talked about. A female driver would get more sponsors, even though we know that almost every female driver has struggled for sponsorship very badly. And in fact, the last woman to nearly get to F1 did not because she did not have sponsorship. Um, so, uh, which was Simona de Silvestro at Sauber. Um, but yeah, I, I will stop rambling now, but I think, I think, I think there's a potential moment to capture here and and that certainly W Series has put the fire up other series in terms of like F3 and F2 needing to do more about this uh, in a way that had sort of stagnated for quite a while. I think another thing as well is that, of course, a woman getting into F1 relies on a team wanting to pick them up. And like you are saying about sponsorship and everything as well, Unfortunately, we've got into kind of a lull this year where a lot of teams aren't wanting to pick up rookies, let alone a female rookie, 
not wanting to be the first one to say go, I suppose. But yeah, that's kind of my point. I don't know where else I was going with that. Yeah, relies on obviously an F1 team having to pick up a female driver. And even though we've got all these drivers in the, all these female drivers in the academies and stuff, a lot of those drivers don't end up making it. And that's just a stat anyway, let alone bringing a, a woman into that situation, unfortunately. It does feel like we're kind of at a um, a bit of a turning point now where, and like you say, there is more of a sense of urgency about it. And I hope that doesn't get lost. And certainly if, if W doesn't continue, then I think, I think as I, you know, I'm fond of saying, W might not have necessarily achieved what it set out to do, but it certainly has highlighted, uh, you know, it's, it's really thrown into stark relief some of the problems that, that were always there, um, like this, the unwillingness of sponsors to, to sponsor female drivers and the, the, the sort of conservatism around teams in, in taking them on. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, W has sort of shown some of that up. Um, and um, I do, I hope it continues because I think if it, if it doesn't, then I think that'll, that'll let the, that'll, sort of take some of the pressure off the that process um but um you know and then again we've got sort of like the iron dames doing really well in in um gtem and uh you know some other kind of possibilities out there but it'd be nice that it's just not the exception anymore um and i think it you know motorsport certainly can get to that point it's just that it seems to be making a really heavy weather of it and on that cheery positive note let's let's wrap that up as we've been going for quite a while we have plenty more to talk about we've got the btt btcc finale this weekend which we didn't get to either one of our number was wined and dined at the recent event we won't talk about that because we hate him for it but there's lots to go and we will we will return with more and of course the next time you hear us will probably be us complaining about the minute fine that red bull got for cooking the books alleged cooking of the books until then thank you matthew willis thanks thank you adam berry thank you thank you ellie thank you for having me yeah i didn't call you bubs that time and of course for reasons known only to herself for joining us properly as our new co-host hazel welcome and thank you so much oh thank you for having me Bye-bye. Thanks for sticking around and listening to this episode of Boundary of Disaster. Please, if you can, like and subscribe. Leave us a review because that would be amazing. It helps with all the algorithms and that means people can find us a little bit easier. Of course, if you can tell your friends as well, you never know. They might start listening to us as well, which would be ace. If you fancy supporting us, there's a Patreon page. The link is in the description. Also check out the other links. We've got a link tree there that goes to all of our socials, including the new TikTok, which Ellie has got up and running and the rest of us still don't know much about. So until next time, thank you so much. Bye.